The unrighteous are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul does not mean that those who have been involved in these things cannot receive forgiveness and salvation. Because he goes on to say, such were some of you. Some of you were involved in these things. You lived in these lifestyles, but the Lord has changed you. Welcome to Under the Fig Tree. Under the Fig Tree is a verse-by-verse study taught by Pastor Jeff Figs of Calvary Chapel of Greeley. We are currently studying through the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. Here's Pastor Jeff. Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? Verse 4, if then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. It is so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now therefore it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? In verse 8, know you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. It should sadden us when we hear people that are unbelievers make the comment, and I'm sure a lot of us have heard this comment, that you Christians are really no different than anyone else and how you live and what you say and where you go. And usually that comment is being made by someone who perhaps knows a Christian or someone who claims to be a Christian, that is, but their lives doesn't show that they are a Christian at all. And the Bible tells you and I very clearly that we have been sanctified, that is, that we have been set apart, and we have been set apart not for the purposes of the world or to pursue the pleasures of the world, but we've been set apart for a life that pleases God, to be used of God. And so, as we have seen in our study so far, in the first five chapters of this epistle, 1 Corinthians, Paul the Apostle here, he's writing this corrective letter to a church that needed to be corrected, that, that needed instruction, because for the most part, they weren't any different as far as their behavior and their conduct than most of the people that were there in Corinth. So Paul is writing this letter, which is very corrective in nature, as I mentioned to you, addressing a number of problems that were taking place in the church. We've already seen in the first five chapters that he was addressing the problem of division. There was fighting and quarreling that was going on. There was envy and there was strife. He was addressing the problem of pride that was in the church. Those who were seeking uh, to be puffed up and, and pursuing the persuasion of man's wisdom. There were, was the problem of carnality that was taking place in chapter 3, as we saw, and also spiritual immaturity. We saw last week in chapter 5 
that there was a big problem taking place in the church, and that was there was sexual immorality. It was known there was a man who was living with his father's wife, that is, his stepmother, in sin. And he was coming to the church. He was having fellowship. It was public notice. And the believers at Corinth were, were tolerating it. They, they didn't grieve over the situation. And so Paul was saying, why are you doing this? Why are, are you tolerating this sin? This is a sin that's not even named among the Gentiles. And so we saw that Paul, he would address that serious problem because, first of all, if the people in the church were tolerating and accepting of this sin, that no big deal, that this immorality that was taking place, this adultery that was taking place, what would happen is then the people of the church would begin to think, well, it's no big deal if I do something like that. And so Paul writes, don't you know that a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump? You need to purge out the leaven. And also, we know that it was a terrible witness to the people at Corinth. Paul's saying, this is a sin not even named among the Gentiles, as we read. It is a witness of you saying that we are no different than the rest of you here in Corinth as far as our morality. And Paul was very concerned about that. He was also very grieved by it. And so he gave the church, as we saw, some instructions and how to deal with this individual. You need to get him out of the church. That is that he needs to be knowing that what he is doing is serious. He's not under the protection and covering of the church so that he may come to that place of repentance, understanding the seriousness of his sin. So we talked about that quite extensively last week, and I would encourage you to get a CD if you weren't here of that study. And so now as we move into chapter 6, Paul addresses yet another problem that was taking place, and that was, as we initially read, that the Christians there at Corinth we're suing one another in these civil matters. And so they're bringing up these lawsuits against one another. So let's begin to look at that, what was taking place. As we read once again, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 1. He writes, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. So when Paul uses that phraseology, dare any of you, it's a strong wording is what it is that he is using. It's a simple translation of, I can't believe that you're doing this to one another. What has taken place in the church? That you're taking one another to court and you're doing it before the unrighteous. And as we continue to read, we're going to see that Paul will say it ought not to be that you Christians are bringing one another, your brothers and sisters in Christ, to court with these lawsuits, having your disputes settled by secular courts. And you see, the Greeks, to understand kind of the way it was back almost 2,000 years ago, the Greeks were avid fans of law. And they would view the court system as something like a sporting event. In Greek cities such as Corinth, Local judges sat in what was known as the Bema seat of the civil magistrate, which was located in the heart of the marketplace. And in that culture, they found a good legal battle and dispute very, very entertaining. Kind of like what we see today in a lot of ways, isn't it? A lot of court cases, not just just, uh, the criminal court cases, but civil court cases can get a lot of press and attention, and we, we follow them very carefully. And it was even more so at this time in the city of Corinth. And so lawsuits 
were made very, very public. And Paul, he makes the point that this is not a good witness. He goes on to explain verse 2. He says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest manners? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? He says, Listen, you Christians, you should be able to fully judge matters between each other because, number one, of your destiny. And verse 2, Paul writes, don't you know? Matter of fact, he says this six times in this chapter. He says, don't you know? Don't you realize? Don't you understand that you have a wonderful future destiny ahead of you as a Christian? Saints are going to judge the world. Don't you know that you're going to judge angels? Now, what does all of that mean when, when we hear that and when we read that? You see, it simply means this, that when the Lord comes back, and we know that the Lord is going to come back, that this age is all going to be consummated as it will come to an end, as we know from the prophetic word that's given to us in Scripture, that at the end of the tribulation period, that final seven-year period preceding the second coming of Jesus Christ, that Christ will come back. And when he comes back, he's going to establish his kingdom here on this earth for a thousand years. It's called the thousand-year reign of Christ or the millennium reign of Christ. Millennium just simply means a thousand. And during that time, the scripture tells us that we're going to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. He will supremely rule but we are going to be given responsibilities. Uh, we're going to be ruling with him. In Revelation chapter 5, that last book of the Bible that tells us of the events preceding the second coming of Jesus Christ, John there is taken by the Spirit up into heaven, and he sees that heavenly vision. And in that heavenly vision, there's a group of people that are singing this new song. It's, it's the church that's singing this song, the, those who are saved, because the words of that song are this, and you have redeemed this to God by your blood. Of course, speaking of Christ, he's the only one that has redeemed us by his shed blood. And the song goes on to, to read, and you have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. And so we are told that we're going to reign on the earth. Jesus speaks about how we're going to rule and reign with him. I don't know exactly what that all means, but it means simply that we are going to be given responsibilities as we rule and reign with Jesus Christ. Maybe responsibilities over cities. Jesus would talk a parable about that, ruling over five cities and ten cities, or administrating in some sort as he's going to be the supreme rule, but one ruling, and then we're going to rule with him. And so it's kind of interesting to look at the scripture, read all those things, know that not only are we going to be given rewards when we go to heaven, as we talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, but also responsibilities as well when he comes to rule and reign. Now, what does it mean that we're going to judge angels? Now, I'm not exactly sure what that means, and I kind of feel bad about that, but I have to be honest with you. And the reason that I kind of feel bad about it, because Paul writes, don't you know? And so he's saying, don't you know? Don't you understand this like you should know? And I'm going, well, I'm not exactly sure what that means. It has been suggested by many scholars that perhaps Paul is making reference to us having a part in judging fallen angels. In the book of Jude, it tells us that there are fallen angels reserved in chains awaiting the day of judgment. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4 speaks of the same thing. 
we do know that Jesus, that all authority and all judgment has been given to him. So is it that? I'm not quite sure. But it could be that as we do rule and reign with Christ, that perhaps we're going to have some charge over angels in the millennium reign, perhaps in the new heaven and new earth that is created after the millennium reign of Jesus Christ. But the main point for you and for me this morning is this. Since we are going to be judging spiritual matters, how much more shall we be able to judge things that pertain to life now? Now, in this section about Christians suing one another, that is very concerning to Paul. I do believe that he is not saying that we should never use the secular courts. Sometimes as Christians, we may have to use the court system. And certainly in criminal matters, but sometimes it might be in the civil matters as well. And we know Paul the Apostle, he used the court system, didn't he? There in the book of Acts, you see that as he was arrested there, wrongly accused of taking Gentiles into the temple there in the book of Acts. And he would go through a series of trials where he stood before the religious council there in Jerusalem. He stood before two governors, Festus and Felix. He would stand before Agrippa and Caesarea, the amphitheater. At that time, as a Roman citizen, he had the right to appeal to Caesar, and he did so. So he exercised that right. He would then go to Rome where he's under house arrest for two years. He would write those prison epistles and then eventually he would stand before Caesar Nero. And so Paul used the court system himself. So this isn't telling us that we should never use the court system or that you cannot receive justice in the secular court. But what he is emphasizing, what the Word of God is emphasizing, is that Christians should never be able to judge matters or should be able to judge matters between ourselves, the civil matters. And so verse 4, as we continue, if then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? So I think he's using a bit of sarcasm here. And basically what the apostle is saying, why would you want to, to have a judgment made by someone who has no spiritual insight? Now remember in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians that we read that the natural man does not know the things or receive the things of the Spirit. You want somebody who is spiritual, who knows God's wisdom to be judging these matters is what he's saying. So he goes on to say, I say this to your shame, verse 5, is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. So Paul here expressing how grieved he is when he hears that a brother in the Lord is bringing a lawsuit against another brother, another believer. He stresses, isn't there one wise enough to deal with these issues and settle these issues within the church, within the body of Christ, with, 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 and among the saints? So again, to, to, to remind you, that's the emphasis of what's being said. We do live in a society where certain matters must be brought to the civil and certainly the criminal court. But the general rule, what he is saying is, don't go to court with your brother or sister. Settle the matter yourselves. Verse 7, Now therefore it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. And why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren? 
So Paul says, and you taking another brother to court and suing him, it's an utter failure. Or that can be translated, a complete defeat. That was a legal expression in the Greek court for you have lost the case. And I think that what is being told to us is that you have lost the case in God's eyes. When you do this, the Christian who takes another Christian to court, and what happens there is you discredit the power of God working in our lives, the wisdom of God's word that should be in our hearts, and and the work in the life of God in that individual and individuals as we come together in Christ. And then Paul says something that really is amazing, but is very hard for us to do. He says, why don't you rather accept wrong and let yourselves be cheated? In other words, give up what you think that you have coming to you for the higher good of God and his kingdom. Why not suffer wrong instead of bringing your dispute before unbelievers? Ideally, the church should have settled the dispute, but if the church failed to do so, if we failed to find one who has wisdom to be able to mediate and bring a settlement, Paul's asking the individuals, the Christians, to trust in God, but not in secular judges and lawsuits and courts. Now, I believe that verse 8 here is a real key to understanding what was taking place here with these lawsuits and them suing one another. I I believe that we get some insight here because he says, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. I believe that what perhaps was taking place is that a lot of these lawsuits seem to be motivated by greed. The lawsuits weren't so much about addressing that which was wrong and seeing that justice be served, but it was more of a means to get up on someone to gain some personal gratification at the expense of a fellow believer. That's what is believed that was taking place again. It was one of those things where you elevated yourself and you puffed yourself up and and it was something that they were doing to one another. And it's not the, the Lord's desire that we do things out of greed. I'm not going to 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 do it because I'm trying to get you know my selfish desires agreed on somebody. And here Paul is saying that don't have that mindset that I'm going to make sure I have everything coming to me that I think that I should. You see, Philippians chapter 2 tells us that we're to esteem others better than ourselves. Paul would write there in in that text that you're to look out not only for your own interests, but for the interests of others. So this is why Paul was so concerned, because they were using the court system, I believe, for their own gain, motivated by greediness and selfishness. In verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, uh, idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So now what we have here is the third don't you know. Paul getting down to some very serious issues here. He writes, of course, inspired by the Spirit of God, don't be deceived. The unrighteous are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And just so we don't misunderstand Who the unrighteous are, he gives a list, doesn't he, in verses 9 and 10. 
And Paul does not mean that those who have been involved in these things cannot receive forgiveness and salvation. Because he goes on to say, such were some of you. Some of you were involved in these things. You lived in these lifestyles. But the Lord has changed you when you got saved. And as Paul lists these different things here in these verses that we just read, he is saying very plainly that these things cannot be continued in the lifestyle of a Christian. You see, people will say, as I mentioned last week once in a while, that it doesn't matter in the way that I am living. It doesn't matter if I'm living with my boyfriend. It doesn't matter if I'm involved in in cheating or lying or if I'm involved in drugs or selling drugs, whatever it might be. Because God loves me and he loves me the way that I am. You know, God's love is is there. God does love us and his love remains. But here's the thing. He never, never desires for us as a Christian to continue in a lifestyle of sin. He never wants us to continue the way that we are and the things that we were involved in before we got saved. When we give our hearts to Jesus Christ, we become a new creature, a new creation in Christ, don't we? That's what the Bible says. We know in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, that all things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. In the last few months, last fall we were going over colossians and how paul was writing about that you put off the old man put off those old things the worldly things and you put on the new man it's like a new set of clothes that you're to put on those things that are pleasing to god in romans chapter 6 verse 1 what shall we say then shall we continue in sin that grace may abound certainly not how we who have died to sin live any longer in it so when we came to jesus christ there was regeneration that took place. We're a new creation in Christ. There is a different in our, difference in our lives. Your life is no longer characterized and dominated by these sins. The sins that characterize those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. These things are never the mark of the life of a Christian. And if they do, they must be immediately repented of and forsaken. These words that Paul writes here, again, inspired by the Spirit of God, should be a searchlight to our own hearts. You remember in Luke chapter 19, when Jesus came to Jericho, he's on his way to Jerusalem to die for the sins of humanity. And right before he gets to Jerusalem, he comes to Jericho there, and he sees a a man, a wee little man named Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was up in a tree wanting to see Jesus. He's a tax collector. And tax collectors back in Jesus' day, they were very much hated because they were ones that worked for Rome, first of all. So they were despised. And they were usually characterized by cheating people and stealing from people. There was a certain quota that they had to to raise this amount of taxes. And anything above that quota, which nobody knew what the quota was except the tax collector himself, That tax collector got to keep it for himself. That was his commission. So the tax collectors of Jesus' day were very good about shaking people down, ripping people off, and they were usually very, very wealthy. So here's Zacchaeus. Jesus walks by, sees him up in a tree, and says, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree. I'm coming over to your house for dinner. The King James reads, I want to abide in your house today. 
And that word abide that is used there in Luke's gospel is the same word that is used in John chapter 15, where Jesus says to his disciples and to you and to me to abide in me, to abide in my word, to abide in my love. Well, after Jesus abides in this known, well-known tax collector's house, afterwards Zacchaeus comes out. He begins to give his money away. He began to repay those that he had ripped off, and, and he repays them not only the amount that he had stolen, but four times as much. And nobody ever doubted that Jesus had touched that man's heart deeply, that he was converted, that Jesus changed his whole life and his whole heart. And here's the positive thing about the passage that we just read. Paul says, such were some of you. Some of you Christians, your lives were characterized by these things. Fornication dominated your life. That word means any kind of sexual, sexual immorality of any sort. Idolatry, which is placing anything above your relationship with God, anything that has priority over your relationship with Him. It can be your car. It can be your career. It can be... The things you're involved in, it can be drugs, a number of things. It can be the person that you're dating. Thank you for joining us on Under the Fig Tree. If you would like a copy of today's study, please call us and ask for the message with today's date. Our phone number is 970-330-1717. That number again, 970-330-1717. If you prefer, you can write us at 2602 West 27th Street, Greeley, Colorado, 80634. You can also visit us online at ccgreeley.com. Under the Fig Tree is brought to you by Calvary Chapel of Greeley. We invite you to join with us for our Sunday morning services at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. and our Wednesday evening service at 7 p.m. Please join with us next time as we continue to study the Bible together on Under the Fig Tree.